Usually when we uh, do our second scripture readings, when we do all of our scripture readings here, we take them from different parts of the Bible and there's usually some kind of thematic connection between these scriptures. Uh, But today it's a little bit different. Instead of just having a thematic uh, connection between our scriptures, we're actually gonna be reading two scriptures, the one that Janet read at the beginning of the service from Exodus 3 and another scripture from this same book, from this book of Exodus. As we continue our Epiphany sermon series, as we continue to explore these stories of encounters with God, uh, both in the Bible and our own personal stories, uh, this book of Exodus is one that I really want to highlight because this book, this story in its entirety is a story of an encounter with God that is begun and maintained throughout the story. This book of Exodus begins a story about a long journey from slavery in Egypt to the doorsteps of the promised land. And this story, especially in this book of Exodus, is a central story that we find in the Hebrew Bible. And we can say that it is the most foundational story for both Jews and Christians alike. Jewish and Christian scholars agree that if we don't really fully understand this Exodus narrative then it's hard to figure out what exactly is going on in the rest of the Bible. And it's even hard to figure out fully what is going on in the gospel narrative. This story of good news that we gather around, this story of God with us, begins not just with the Christ child, but it begins with this story of salvation, this ancient story of presence that started well before this Christ child was born. And so Pastor Janet, as we said, read from a story in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And in a few minutes, I'm going to read, you from a sto- read to you from a story towards the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 34. But before that, that leaves a big gap in the narrative. So I'm going to attempt to tell you the story of the Exodus, at least within this singular book, in about 18 and a half minutes. So the prologue to the Exodus which we call Genesis, has left the sons of Jacob in the land of Egypt. They fled there when a famine came to the land that God had promised to their fathers. Generations later, these Egyptians are no longer fond of this growing population of Israelites, and an unnamed Pharaoh decides that these people are a threat and decides to enslave them. And as the treatment of Israel gets more and more abusive, these people begin to groan in their slavery. And yet these people persisted. They continued to multiply, and Pharaoh continued to feel threatened by these foreigners. And eventually Pharaoh demanded that they begin to be eradicated and ordered that the Hebrew newborn males be murdered at birth. But it's through the miraculous bravery and cunning of the Jewish women and midwives that future generations are saved. One family whose son did survive birth still feared for this son's life. And so they turned to the Nile, to this river for salvation. They cast this newborn boy into the water. And they hoped that this would lead to salvation for this boy for safety. And fortunately, this boy is found. And instead of being left to drown by the Egyptian authorities, this boy is taken into the home of the very Pharaoh who had sentenced him to die. Forty years later, this boy became a man named Moses, and he begins to see the pain and the oppression of his people. 
He tries to alleviate their suffering by murdering an Egyptian taskmaster, but then again, for fear of his life, he has to flee. And for 40 more years, Moses wanders the deserts of Midian, shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law. Finally, though, as he's wandering one of these days, he notices something. He'd come to a mountain that was called Horeb, and on that mountain, he came upon this bush, this bush that was aflame. And in a hot and arid land, the fire itself was probably not too surprising, but something about that moment made Moses stop. And in fact, some of the Jewish scholars, some of the Jewish rabbis wondered just how long this bush was alight. How long had this bush been burning as Moses wandered day by day beyond it? How long did it take Moses to actually notice this thing? Maybe Moses wandered by that bush day after day, failing to notice that this bush was never consumed, that this flame enveloped but did not burn. And so the rabbis asked, how long did it take? How long did it take after Moses had murdered a man? How long after Moses had fled from his people? How long did he have to dwell in the desert before he had the capacity to notice something new? How long did it take for him to want to find the divine once again in the mundane of the world? And the answer appears to be a long time. But somehow on this day, Moses noticed. And in this moment, Moses meets God for the first time. And this God calls Moses to return to Egypt, to go back and to lead the Hebrew people to their freedom. And Moses' response to this miraculous encounter is rather tepid. He gets a little bit afraid. He asks for help and he gets it. He also wants to know who exactly is it that's sending me? Who has the authority to send me to do this? Who is it that's going to be with me? Moses asks. And for the first time in our Bible, this God reveals this divine name. It's a strange name. It's actually made up of a couple of verbs and a particle. The name is Eye, Asher, Eye. And millennia later, we have a hard time translating these words. I am who I am is what we've read, but it's also been translated as I was who I was and I will be who I will be. And one scholar says, I will be there, even there. And so it's under this strange divine name and authority that the promise of God's presence is given to Moses and to the people, and Moses sets out to complete the task. Moses returns to Egypt with his brother and sister at his side to demand the people's freedom, and Pharaoh refuses, so God sends these 10 plagues over Egypt until Pharaoh relents. And finally, the Hebrews are allowed to set free, allowed to be set out into the desert. And even as Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his army after them, the people travel through the separated sea and they find salvation once again in a watery passage. After a brief celebration on the far shore, Moses then leads the people further into the desert, heading toward the mountain on which Moses had first met this God that called them. Now in the book of Exodus, there are several themes, but one of those themes is particularly important to us today and in this series of Epiphany that we've been in, and you've probably already picked up on it. When Moses met this God at the book, at the bush, 
He asked this God, who is it that I shall say is going with me? Moses didn't just ask for a name, but he asked for a promise and for an acknowledgement that this God would be present and with him. And as this nation moves further into the desert, the same question keeps coming up. Who is it that's with us, the people ask? Are we merely following Moses to our deaths? How are we to find food and water and shelter in the desert? Who is it that's with us? The question is rather constant. And it's so pressing that some of these Israelites want to return to slavery. They want to trade one empire for another. They want to not suffer in the desert when they know that the suffering of slavery was okay. Why follow a new Pharaoh when we know the old one? And as they wander, as they wander though, this question is answered over and over. God does provide food. God does provide water. God does provide shelter and protection. And months later, the people finally come to that mountain. And as you read the book, it'll sometimes be called Horeb and it'll sometimes be called Sinai, but it's the same mountain. And it's on this mountain that the question is really fully asked and that this question is really fully answered finally. Who is it that's with us? And the answer is that this is the God of the ancestors. It is that God of the past, but it is also the God of the present moment of freedom. And it's the God that will go with them. It is the God that will be with them as they go into the future. This is the God that was and the God that is and the God that will be there, even there. And yes, this God does demand something from the people. They're free from Pharaoh. But this God that they are following too uh, demands loyalty. And the stipulations for this loyalty are spelled out in these 10 commandments in a book of laws. And at Sinai, it's made clear that Israel is to have no other God other than this one. As you read these verses in this story, you see this demand made. In Exodus 20, it says, You shall not bow down to other gods or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents. Or this is from Exodus 23, speaking of God's messenger that goes before the people. It says, Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. My name is in him, and I will not pardon your sin. So this God makes it pretty clear that disloyalty will not be tolerated. This God will not forgive infidelity. This God who sent the people into the wilderness in the first place will abandon them there. No provision, no protection, no presence. And in chapter 24, all of the people upon hearing these stipulations said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. God and Israel have finally made their covenant. 
Now, the first order of business for this covenant is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God will be present with the people. This is where God will dwell. His presence will be with the people, and they can be assured of his presence. And so Moses stays up on this mountain to receive instruction from this God on this tabernacle. And because it will be the house of God, every detail matters. And we get five long, detailed building instructions, five chapters of building instructions, and they are long. And so as Moses is up there on the mountain receiving these instructions that take 40 days to give, the people at the bottom of the mountain continue to ask the question, who is it that's with us? Moses is up there, and we don't know who's with us still. And this time when the question is asked, the people decide to take it into their own hands to provide the answer. And they fashion a God of their own, a golden calf, something echoing the gods that they had known in their slavery. And the God that demanded loyalty on top of that mountain sees this infidelity. And so this God prepares for the punishment. In chapter 32 of Exodus, it says that this God says he will count this sin against the people. And in chapter 33, this God declares that the divine presence will no longer lead these people through the desert. But Moses, Moses, who has been as exasperated with this people as God, it seems, finally stops. And I think he finally notices something. That like the flame that enveloped that bush, but didn't consume it, this God had been with Israel. This God had enveloped them in this desert place, and at no step along the way had this God consumed them. And so Moses does what any of us would do in the face of an angry God, and he pushes back. Moses decides to argue. Moses says to this God, it was you who called me. It was you who promised to be with me. It was you that rescued us and took us out into the desert. It was you that promised to be with us, to take us to the promised land. And if you don't go with us, then your word means nothing. And so Moses asks again, who is it? Who is it that's with us? Who are you? If you're going to promise your presence and then take it away, who are you? Show me your face. Show me your face, God. Show me the glory and the power. Show me the fullness of your presence. And so God answers. And God tells Moses that he will finally fully proclaim this divine name. And as this God makes this promise, just like in that divine name, he tosses out another couple of verbs attached to a particle, which is strange in itself. I am who I am in chapter three. Becomes in chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I am who I am becomes I will have grace on those that I will have grace. I will show compassion to you. Even to you. 
And so here we finally do come to our second scripture reading. And as you listen to this passage, this passage comes from the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus. I want you to notice that something different is happening. Where those demands were made in Exodus 20 and Exodus 23, where the uh, promise of retribution was given. Some of that's missing and there's something added into this passage. So hear these words from this 34th chapter of the book of Exodus. Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the mountain, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. Do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And hearing this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Moses said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity, pardon our sin and take us for your inheritance. And God said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform marvels such as have not been performed in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you live shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the story of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did you notice the difference in the passages? When God was described before, the focus was on God's lack of compassion. When God was described before, it was a jealous God who would not pardon. But now, just a few chapters later, this description shifts. Something's added. Now God is described as merciful. God's described as slow to anger. And by the way, this is one of my favorite Hebrew idioms. There are a lot of interesting idioms in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew behind slow to anger is Eric Afaim. And it's literally translated as long of nostril. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is long of nostril. When anger comes, this God breathes deep. And so before the golden calf, the word was judgment. 
But then infidelity happened. The failure came. And rather than rightfully abandoning the people, this God decided to speak yet a new word. And this new word is that forgiveness will be the foundational function of God's relationship with Israel and with the world. Yes, injustice and oppression will be met with judgment, but forgiveness, mercy, and grace will always be available. The story of the Exodus is a story of epiphany. This entire, entire story, like that bush, is enveloped in the divine presence. And the people gradually learn throughout this story that this God that says this God will be present actually stays present, even in the face of failure. And even that the question that they ask over and over is a necessary question. Who is with us? Who is this God? Is this just another oppressive overlord demanding our production? But God teaches this people that is used to slavery what it is to be free. This God whose power and might demand loyalty chooses to forgive even the unfaithful. This story envelops our stories. This story envelops the story of Christ, the story of God with us. When we ask, who is with us? It's this God who's merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's this God that forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. These three words are all the words for sin in the Hebrew language. And this God forgives them all. This God is long of nostril. In the name of the God of Exodus, in the Christ of forgiveness, in the spirit of grace. Amen.